If your business is earning millions, stop what you're doing and take a listen to what offer NetSuite by Oracle has just rolled out. At my last company, we used NetSuite to have much more visibility to our business in terms of what was working, what was not working, what was coming in, what was going out. 33,000 companies have already upgraded to NetSuite, gaining visibility and control over their finances, inventory, HR, e-commerce, and much more. And for the first time, NetSuite is allowing you to defer payments of a full NetSuite implementation for six months. There's no payment and no interest for six months. And you can take advantage of this special financing offer today. If you've been sizing NetSuite up to make the switch, then you know the deal is unprecedented. No interest, no payments. Take advantage of this special financing offer at netsuite.com scale. netsuite.com scale to get the visibility and control you need to weather any storm. That is netsuite.com slash skill. Welcome back to the Uncharted Podcast. This is Poya. I have a special guest, Guy Marion, joining us. Guy, how are you today? Great. Thanks for having me, Poya. So excited to have you. Guy, we'd like to kick it off with a quick personal business bio. Give everybody context on who you are. Yeah, thanks very much. My name is Guy Marion. I'm now the Chief Marketing Officer for Chargebee, the subscription billing and revenue growth management platform. Was formerly the CEO and founder of Brightback, where we automated customer retention for high volume subscription services for the first time. I started that company in early 2018 and were acquired by Chargebee last January, and that is now the Chargebee retention product line. Before that, I was the CMO of Autopilot, a easy-to-use online marketing automation platform. And prior to that, I was at Zendesk. And prior to that, I was the, the co-founder and various growth roles effectively in a early SaaS startup uh, that was acquired by a CollabNet, which is an enterprise software development platform. You left out a part, which was you went to school and even I believe got your PhD for something that has nothing to do with what you do today. What's the story there? What's the background? And more importantly, how, how has that helped you in your current role, if any way? Good research. I grew up the son of an expat. So we grew overseas and uh, lived in 13 countries before graduating from high school in Hong Kong and really learned that, you know, all people are effectively entrepreneurs looking to either build or sell something and expand. I also have always been interested in the sciences. And in college, I went down a science path rather than an engineering path, which I thought I might initially funded some, you know, developed some scientific methods that I published as an undergrad. And that led to raising $1.2 million from the government in Australia and doing a PhD there with experts in the climate and the paleochemistry world, developing new chemical tracers to trace historical runoff and understand how it impacts with climate change. Um, and how it helped me today, I had to develop a product, publish it, um, communicate it, raise funding for it, work with teams around the world. And I had a great friend who just started a company when I was living in Australia called CVS Dude that was hosting source code for companies like Zora, Marketo, HubSpot, Zendesk, Okta, Viva Systems. This is in the mid-2000s. And it was very clear to me as a global collaborator in my own technical field that Hosting code and collaborating in the cloud globally was a clear need and a huge opportunity in the future. And so I joined him as a co-founder. I finished my PhD and I transitioned from academia, which is a bit slower. You're constantly raising funding into the startup world. 
you alluded to it earlier, and I can see now why you've you've had some of the experiences you've had. Out of everything you've done, CEO, CMO, working for a company like Zendesk at the prime of its you know scale, what role or opportunity or job or experience do you think has had the most profound impact on you, and why? Yeah, I think we're all impacted by our first experiences. Our first couple of experiences is a concept of the deep T. What's your deep T as you grow into management or found? And for me, the combination of using data and automation early on to deliver great customer experiences, whether it's software developers trying to figure out how to check out code and commit, or whether it's customer service managers signing up for software that makes it beautifully simple to create a help desk and engage your customers in a meaningful way. All of those users need to be onboarded. You can take data-driven approaches to figure out if they're red, yellow, green. You need to instrument your products. You can target users with customer experiences that are personalized at scale. And we don't have, you know, most companies don't have a thousand people to engage their customers. So especially early on, we figured out that using automation tools coupled with data and targeting has a profound impact on growth trajectories of SaaS businesses. So I really had a lot of opportunity to experiment with that and build that in my company, CVS Dude. And then at Zendesk, I had the opportunity to do that at the time, the most successful, highest impact bottom-up SaaS company in the world at that point. And that was through the IPO period. So it was a rapid scaling phase when we needed to automate and and develop one-to-many approaches and still deliver a, a fantastic customer experience. One of the things I love about having experienced business professionals is you get to kind of learn from their experience, what gets easier, what gets harder. And usually when I have founders that are second time founders, I ask like, hey, what gets easier or harder the second time? I'm going to add a caveat in yours, which is being a CMO, right? You've had a wide range of marketing experiences in the past, but at least this is your second time in at the helm, you know, spearheading marketing. I know times are different. Marketing, I just think, is one of the toughest roles for for folks. But from your experience looking back, what's gotten easier and what's gotten more difficult over time? Yeah, great question. What's gotten easier is you start to spot trends, right? For example, if you've got friction in your buying process, if you've got sales challenges that aren't being met by the sales teams or by the customers, you start to understand and have playbooks that you've seen work before. I think a key lesson is every company is truly different. This idea you can roll out playbooks from one company to another, it's transferable. There's some truth to that, but every company is nuanced and have its own differences. So I think one benefit is you start to develop these playbooks for how to build messaging and position go to market, what metrics to track to see if your trials are converting, if your sales funnel is getting stuck, if your customers are expanding versus net churning, you know, are you targeting the right customers versus not the right customers? Do you have real ICP fit or not? Those are all concepts that become more and more clear and you can quickly cover, as well as the technical operations for how to, to, to grow a business or develop software. So those are those have gotten easier. What gets harder is, you know, as you've seen success or seen how things can work, when you're not at that scale, you find yourself doing a lot of things that you know could be done differently or better and you're back to the drawing board. So I think what, you know, people who are more entrepreneurial love that being hands-on and being able to build gives that opportunity, but also knowing that there's often a golden path and you're not on it. <laughs> and, and I'm going to take that a, a step further because, and I'm, I know I'm, we're going off a little bit off topic, but what's really interesting about your background is you've been a CEO, right? And I think one of the unique parts of a CEO is you get to balance short-term goals and long-term goals. And I yes. think the hardest position to do that is marketing, right? And 
how do you do that in this environment? Everybody's talking about what's the ROI, you know, like that's being discussed in every single move, but I think it's also short-sighted because you got to balance the branding thing. And there's some bets you got to make long-term, like, how do you think through those and balancing that? As a CEO building a company, you build a product, you gain customers, you grow your team and you fund the business, right? You're constantly hopping between those, those sort of four pillars of requirements early in when you're working in the business and later stage founders need to learn how to work on the business and get out of the majority of their time being in the day-to-day operations and build and trust the management team. As a CMO, I think it's a great question. You always need to have a vision for where you're going. Great people join visions and directions and the opportunity to be their best selves. They don't join quarter to quarter targets. So on the one hand, you need to set a vision and direction for who we are. Chargebee is a revenue growth management platform. We help companies acquire, retain, scale their financial operations and integrate across the finance stack at a global scale. And if we don't have the ability for every person to be able to speak to what they're doing and why it matters, then you don't acquire great teams and great teams are what ultimately really make companies be successful. But especially in the current environment, every SaaS business, every venture-backed company in the Valley, I think right now, has probably had to reset their targets once, maybe twice in the last six months. And that's not in the standard vocabulary for venture-backed boards and, and founders. And when that happens, things go sideways and decisions need to be made that are difficult decisions quickly, whether it's downsizing, whether it's cutting costs, whether it's refocusing on a different ICP and pivoting. And there's a lot of that happening right now. So there's a lot of thrash in the industry. My advice or what we've sort of focused on is how do we use this as an, on the positive side, how do we use this as an opportunity to really get down to the, the core um, underlying strengths of the business, which teams and processes and products are working best. What are the right metrics to know that you're tracking correctly? If like you want to spend a dollar to acquire a dollar, that could be a helpful metric right now, like a one-to-one CAC. The industry has been growth at all costs for a long time. So we're being forced to reset and SaaS businesses are being valued on efficiency more so than growth in the moment. So it's refined your core strengths from a team's perspective and your underlying metrics, scale back, plan for six months in advance, and use Q3 and Q4 to sort of reestablish those baselines going into next year so you can start to build back up again next year. You nailed it because I think part of this is leadership. And in doing some of my research, one of the things a lot of people commented on, and I'm going to dig into it, is what you alluded to earlier, which is sharing a vision, getting everybody on board, making it feel like they're included, because when they're included, they're more you know, passionate to do what you're asking them to do. And I've heard from multiple people, that's your strength, that's your superpower. If someone's listening to this and they're trying to learn from your experience, what are some like tactical transferable things you can share that if I'm a little more introverted, I don't have the skill sets that guy has, I can maybe implement some of those things as well. First of all, I appreciate the compliment. I don't think I always agree that I'm great at this, but um, what I've learned is that, first of all, we all know there's a lot of problems in this world that haven't been solved. And yet it's natural for most people to say that has been solved or someone's already thought of that. But once you realize that, in fact, most problems aren't thoroughly solved, actually, they either haven't been properly addressed or they're not being done very well. And you look at other companies, how many of them do you say they're perfect? Not. Most of us say it's not. So 
I think what people get convinced on and excited about is conviction that you've seen something from a unique perspective and you have the data to support it. So you mentioned the academic background. And again, I think there's mixed reviews on whether being a PhD is great or not great because you know there's a level of you have to accept the 80% rule, not the 99.5% rule, which is proving it in science. But there's an aspect of you do you prove with data and testing a opinion first, you test it from a lot of different angles. And that's kind of like the fundamental scientific method. And it's also the engineering data method, right? You want to be able to test things over and over. And so in my take, it's always, what's the interesting, unique angle that no one is speaking about right now on a problem that people recognize and needs to be addressed? And what's the data you've done to show you've really done your homework? And then can you present this in a way that people can repeat? And the ideal outcome is that you by the end of it, other people can actually deliver that same message, not yourself, because that's when it really works. If you can kick off a conversation, say three sentences, and then have the other people in the room speak what you're trying to speak, that's when you're moving forward. So I think those are some goals to shoot for is like insight, credibility, conviction, and then clear articulation that can be repeated. A hundred percent. And what have you found to be the best format of doing this? Like, is it, you know, like writing a an article? Is it video? Is it in person? So in the beginning, you have no data when you start a company. <laughs> so at that point, you're usually running off your experience or social proof. And in that moment, then slides, and there's a reason why decks remain the, the primary means of information exchange with VCs and early founders, is that you can indicate a, a direction and a vision as well as provide social proof. The six-pager, where you write out What's the background, the problem statement, some some social points for it, a model, an engagement point, the team and the go to market motions like that six pager forces you to work through the details in a way that can be skipped over in slides. So I think that's a strong secondary, particularly for hiring and building your engineering, your technical teams who would like to sink their teeth in. Third, every founder should sit down and write a point of view article that can typically become an ebook or a long form blog post that becomes the founding principle for their business. And then from there, I believe that Brian Halligan from HubSpot early on said that every single Sunday he would write a blog post. And then that would sort of build the stepping stones and the, and the foundations for what became sort of their point of view and their content and their message to the world. And I think that founders need to actually be good at writing and commit to doing so even if it's a few paragraphs. And that is also what people will reference because backlinks and links go a lot further than slides in the world. Building also your community, right? Building people that, you know, at some point will start uh, talking about what you're talking about. Well, look, Guy, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you for paying it forward. The one question we'd love to end every show with is if you could go back to any time, what's one piece of advice you would give your younger self? Yeah. <laughs> um, Pretty simple. Sheryl Sandberg said this, but I've always said like join high quality companies with high quality leadership. You know, Sheryl Sandberg is famous for saying if someone asks you to join a rocket ship, don't ask which seat to jump on. I do think that first or second gig, seeing how things work is a good thing to do. People often ask, should I just start a company and do that first? Join the best company that you can, the highest quality, learn for two or three years. And then if you have the entrepreneurial itch, then go all in on it. I think that is what I would do if I was to repeat all over again. I did the order in reverse. It worked for me, but I think that would be the path of least resistance. It hits home because I took your advice and I'm not saying Oracle is the best company to start with, but I, at least for me, I was so freaking green. I am very, very grateful to have started because 
they're still one of the largest freaking enterprise software companies out there. And there's a reason for that. And being able to, outside of seeing what's working, what's not working, the network you build, it goes so freaking far because I'm still network. leveraging that 10 years later, you know? Yep. Credibility, history, network, that's critical. So Yeah. And as much as startup folks love to hate it, you can use the Oracle brand 10 years later to you know sometimes build credibility. Again, Guy, this has been fantastic. For everybody listening, I will put Guy's LinkedIn and whatnot in the show notes. I've heard he's one of the most approachable people out there. So reach out. Thank him for coming on the show. Everybody, thanks again for tuning into this week's episode. Until next time, be well, be safe. And once again, Guy, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Boya. Appreciate your time today. If your business is earning millions, stop what you're doing and take a listen to what offer NetSuite by Oracle has just rolled out. At my last company, we used NetSuite to have much more visibility to our business in terms of what was working, what was not working, what was coming in, what was going out. 33,000 companies have already upgraded to NetSuite, gaining visibility and control over their finances, inventory, HR, e-commerce, and much more. And for the first time, NetSuite is allowing you to defer payments of a full NetSuite implementation for six months. There's no payment and no interest for six months. And you can take advantage of this special financing offer today. If you've been sizing NetSuite up to make the switch, then you know the deal is unprecedented. No interest, no payments. Take advantage of this special financing offer at netsuite.com scale. netsuite.com scale to get the visibility and control you need to weather any storm. That is netsuite.com slash scale.